Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thanks for joining me this evening. As the show is published, many, many people who are listening to it are going to be doing so kind of cooped up at home and really worried about the the events of the current day. And so tonight we're going to talk about something that's going to take place, if ever, in the future. Maybe not the distant future, but maybe the distant future. And while it is... Um, outside of our our realm of possibility at the current moment, I feel like there's a part to this, as we go through it, that will be relatable. Um, We're going to be talking about the colonization of Mars. Now, the colonization of Mars has been a dream in science fiction for a long time. At the very least, visiting Mars, having a manned crew there, has been a staple of science fiction stories. Prior to there really being a space program, there was numerous stories of people going to Mars and exploring it. Um, Elon Musk today is looking to make this dream possible, and uh, you know he's he's making amazing progress, right? With all the all the work that the engineering team is doing at SpaceX, um, they've they've made tremendous progress, and and maybe getting people to Mars is something that'll happen in the relatively near future. NASA's working on it as well, the SLS system. So there's there's the possibility that we'll see people on Mars. But the question is colonization. What would colonization be like? How would it work? This is going to take uh some time to to go through and you know we'll we'll probably need uh at least one follow-up episode if not more. Early stories of science fiction traveling to other planets imagined worlds like our own. Um you know, if you if you read Robert Heinlein's stories, they talk about, you know, going to this planet, and there's weird creatures there, but the air is breathable. Reality is much harsher. Venus, it's pretty much Earth's twin. It's a bit smaller and a little closer to the sun, and from here we can see it's very cloudy. And so people imagined that it was some sort of jungle planet. You know, maybe the, the creature's eyes have evolved differently or something, but they believe that it was you know, maybe a lush jungle under there because it's like a giant rainforest. Still, some sun is getting through, right? But in the 70s, the Soviet Union landed a lander on Venus and found that it was much worse. It wasn't a jungle planet. It was an inferno. The temperature is hotter than the oven in your house. It's over a 1,000 degrees. And the atmosphere is made of acid, and it's so thick that it's almost a liquid when you get down to surface level. It's a very high-pressure, high-viscosity atmosphere. It's a completely alien environment, and it's the hottest planet in our solar system. It's hotter than Mercury, which is you know, practically right next to the sun. It, it seemed like it would have been the perfect place to live, but with today's Venus, there's no way. Mars, on the other hand is a good deal further away. There was an astronomer quite some time ago who thought he saw canals on Mars. Um, He actually wrote it as channels, I think, but it got interpreted into English as canals. So people had believed that maybe Martians were there digging canals or digging channels or that there were rivers. 
Mars is a good deal further away than, than the Earth from the Sun. And so they thought maybe, you know, it, it's maybe a little cooler. Maybe there's water there. I mean, it's certainly close enough to the Sun that it could have liquid water. But once we landed there, we found out that reality is, again, much different than what you'd hope. The atmosphere is very sparse. So whereas Venus has this thick, high-pressure atmosphere, Mars is the opposite. It has a very thin, low-pressure atmosphere. Zero, uh, 0.088 psi, less than 0.1 pounds per square inch of pressure. And that's compared to 14.7 pounds per square inch of standard pressure on Earth. Um, that's similar in pressure to what you'd get at 35 kilometers in the air. For some kind of reference, that is about the altitude that a weather balloon reaches before it pops. It's high enough up to see the curvature of the Earth. Um, it's far, far higher than commercial airliners fly. They fly at about 10 kilometers in the air. So you're talking about, you know, very, very low pressure. Um, and, you know, you can imagine what comes along with that. The atmosphere there is mostly made of carbon dioxide, so there's nothing that we can breathe. Plants could breathe there, right? They could get the carbon dioxide, but with the pressure being so low, it may not work for them for a few reasons. Um, it is far away from the sun, right? And so it's not getting as much solar radiation. And that wouldn't necessarily be a problem, right? The greenhouse effect with carbon dioxide could have it be warm. But with a thin atmosphere, there's just not enough atmosphere to hold in the heat. Right? There's a reason that Venus is very hot and has a thick atmosphere, and Earth is in the middle and Mars is the opposite, right? Um, the, the atmosphere is just unable to warm up to the extent that you'd want. And so there are times in the summer on the equator it can get above freezing for water, uh, at least Earth, Earth conditions above freezing, but they're very rare. Most of the planet isn't that way. In general, it's just always too cold for liquid water. And when it's not too cold for liquid water, the pressure is too low. Uh, when, when you drop the pressure low enough, water's going to boil, right? That's why if you're in Denver, water boils at a different temperature than if you're in Miami. And that, that's the case on Mars. The, the pressure is so low that water just will boil spontaneously if it's a liquid. So it can either be a gas or a solid, but it can't be liquid. So the atmosphere is bad, the temperature is bad, water is not available. To make things worse, there are major dust storms, dust devils, and there are dust storms that are so big they can cover the entire planet. We don't quite understand the mechanisms behind that, but we've definitely observed them. And every five and a half years you get one of these giant storms that will just engulf all of Mars. And you're talking about this dust. It's dustier than anything most of us have ever experienced because it's all this wind-blown small rocks and stuff that have, you know, turned into fine, sharp particulate matter. Some of it's smooth, right? I mean, look, no one's seen it, but we can imagine it because we know what happens to sand in, say, the Sahara versus sand at the beach where there are different forces acting on them, right? The sand in the Sahara Desert, because it's almost entirely acted upon by wind, is very small and fine and smooth, and it's so smooth it can't be used in construction. So you've got that stuff would probably stick to everything. And then you'd have some of the larger, grainier pieces, right? They're, they're, 
you know, be no way to see, no way to do anything. It's a major risk for the the landers and probes that we've sent to Mars. Um, the gravity there is a third of what it is on Earth, or about double the moon's gravity. So as far as things go, that's probably good for some stuff. For example, if you need to build something and need to lift it, it'll be much easier to do. It'll require less energy. Launching a rocket from Mars will require less energy. Um, you know, it's more than the moon, so it's a little bit more doable. Um, I, I don't know if that level of gravity is enough to prevent um, atrophy in humans. Certainly in space, people's bones get far less dense because they just don't have that pressure pushing against the bones anymore. Um, so that one's a bit of a mixed bag. The, the only real bright side of the environment of Mars is the length of the day. So if, if you're not familiar with this, the length of a year is determined by how long it takes you to travel one time around the sun. And the length of a day is how long it takes for your planet to spin. So the, um, the, the Martian year is much longer than the Earth year because it's further out. I think it's like two or two and a half years. I don't remember off the top of my head. But the Martian day is about 25 hours, which is actually pretty good because you'll get you know, 12 and a half hours of light and darkness on average throughout the year. That's not too far off from what we have on Earth. And a lot of people, if you put them in a sleep isolation study, they'll stay up for 25, or have a 25-hour circadian rhythm, right? They'll wake up and stay up to a certain point, go to bed, and their day will become 25 hours long instead of 24 hours long if they don't have a clock or the sun or something to kind of get them into a rhythm. So it's from a practical standpoint, pretty easy to see how we live on Mars. We probably sleep a half hour longer at night and then stay up a half hour longer in the day or maybe 15 minutes. I mean, uh, and a one-hour difference probably isn't that big of a deal. And, you know, for all the people who wish there was an extra hour in the day, that's probably the big benefit to moving to Mars. Um, the habitat on Mars is going to be reflective of the conditions, right? So life would have to be very different. Um, we need to be in a sealed place with enough oxygen, right? The, you, there's no walking outside without some kind of a spacesuit. And so we could probably produce oxygen by growing plants or concentrating it. At least initially we'd have to do something like that or bring our own. Um, but if you get some plants or some algae inside of this enclosed environment, um, we could produce oxygen. Um, getting enough atmospheric pressure is probably not that big of a deal because you can always pump air from the outside, pressurize the, the chamber um, or the, the habitat. There have to be some safety mechanisms in place to kind of you know, keep uh, big leaks from leaking out too quickly. But it wouldn't need to be a perfect seal because you could always bring in more air from the outside, right? This is different than space where if the air leaks out, it's just leaked out. Here, we can pull air back in. It's just the air we're pulling in doesn't have enough oxygen. So as long as we can produce oxygen quickly enough, a perfect seal is not necessary. Uh, I would expect that any habitat would be underground. I mean, anything you read, you're going to see that that's, you know, the most likely scenario. Um, it's possible to build some kind of, you know, structures above ground, and obviously there are going to be some of those, especially to enlighten things, but the environment's pretty harsh. Um, one thing I, I forgot to mention in the environment section is that there's no magnetosphere on, um, on Mars, right? So the Earth has a magnetic field. That's why compasses work. The magnetic field 
is important, not just because of compasses, but because with that magnetic field, all this radiation from the sun, you know, solar winds and, and some cosmic rays as well, are deflected. And so the level of radiation on Earth is much lower because we have this ionized uh, air up in the ionosphere that's blocking out some UVC light. We've got a, a thick layer of atmosphere that's scattering UVC light. We have the magnetosphere, and so that protects us. That doesn't exist on Mars, and that's actually one of the reasons that the Martian atmosphere is so thin, because with all the solar winds coming in, which are these little charged particles, they're, it's pretty good at, at bumping away the atmosphere over time, over millions and billions of years that's happened. And so there's probably going to be some level of above ground, you know, windows or whatever, but you got to think underground structures because you need a lot of solar radiation protection. And there's no way around that. There's some things you could do. You could have, uh, you know, lead lined glass or lead infused glass. You could have, um, you know, water, which is, is pretty good at, at slowing down some of this uh, highly radioactive stuff. Um, if it's uh, UVC light, we can filter for that. So there are things you can do to kind of allow some visibility to the outside, but you're not going to have, you know, thin, clear windows. And you need a lot of protection. And so underground is probably the best way. There are caves on Mars. They're not caves that are, are um, excavated by water, like are, a lot of caves on Earth are. But there are ones that are called uh, lava tubes, which is where you know, lava had formed in a certain way, and there's kind of a bubble, and then... When the lava cools, it leaves a tube behind. Um, so those are kind of the sort of areas you would live. If local materials are available, it's possible that the settlement can grow pretty large. So if in in situation that you're able to get the materials you need and build up a, a viable habitat that people can live in, then you have the possibility of growing a large settlement with large rooms, capability to have a lot of people, and um, being a place that you know would, would actually be able to sustain that long term. If you have to ship everything in, it's hard to imagine that that would make sense economically over time, right? That you'd be able to build a large enough habitat for a lot of people. Mars would need a tremendous economy to sustain itself. It would need to grow food, right? And Everywhere needs to grow food, but you're growing it in a place that food has never grown before, right? So this this isn't like the settlers from Europe coming to the New World and they found the most fertile land you can imagine, and you know stuff grew very easily. And once they could get through the winters and learn the local things, you know food was not really a major problem. This is settling in Siberia. In fact, a harsher environment by far than Siberia. Farming is hard. We need to support oxygen production. We have to farm oxygen. We've never had to do that before, right? We get oxygen for free because there's plants around us. Water reclamation. Well, you know, we have a whole system on Earth, right, that, you know, water evaporates, goes into clouds, it gets purified by the Earth, it gets purified in the rain. Some of it's uh, fresh water, some of it's salt water. In Mars, there may be some water and ice underground. We're not 100% sure of that seems likely based on what we know but you know you can melt that but you're gonna have to make good use of your water and find ways to reclaim it within your habitat within your city that you build and then you're going to need all the other regular services trash disposal 
police, fire, uh, ambulances, med medical facilities, and you know, I, I uh, saw a thing about the island of St. Helena and how they used to have to wait up to a month to get to a major hospital um, because they had to wait for the RMS Helena ship to come in. But on Mars, you might have to wait several years to get to a major hospital. So any medical work that needs to be done has to be done there. So you're going to need to have enough doctors. You're going to have to have enough nurses. You're going to have to have enough of everything to be able to do all that. Um, it's hard to imagine that the planet could become self-sustaining until there are millions there. Because you're going to need to do all these jobs in a way that there's more food produced per person than is necessary, more oxygen than is necessary per person working on it, right? You have to have the food producers producing enough excess food that people can do non-food related jobs. Same with the oxygen production, same with water reclamation, same with health, right? You need all enough local economy to sustain all of that in a very harsh, inhospitable environment. So that means they're going to have to import on Mars a lot of stuff from Earth. And for that to be maintained over the long term, it's got to provide something in return. Maybe tourism is a viable option, but that's a long, long tourist trip. It's hard to tell your boss, hey, I'm taking off uh, four years so I can go see Mars, right? It's, it's not exactly a, a two-week trip to, to Miami Beach. So that's a big, big thing. It would have to have something valuable there, right? You have all the people there, and then some group of people there is doing something valuable, something that you can't easily do on Earth or can't do on Earth cheaper. So maybe there's some sort of knowledge work or science that can be done there that can't be done on Earth. But most likely early on, there's going to be some kind of valuable mineral or uh, refined mineral product that we can get on Mars that's rare on Earth. If we can find something like that, then you start to have a means of doing trade with Earth. So that takes us into the habitat, the economy, why the environment's hard. But one thing that is really interesting to me, probably the most interesting thing to me, is communication. Um, communication is is going to be a challenge. Now, we know it's possible to send communications between Earth and Mars. We do it today. Um, but one thing I don't think most people think about is the latency of communication. High-frequency traders think about it, and occasionally you experience it if you're on an international call that happens to take a satellite, which is pretty rare these days. Right? Mostly what we're dealing with is you know, milliseconds of latency anywhere on Earth. But to Mars, 20 minutes of latency is going to be normal, and it can be higher, right? It just takes a long time for light or radio waves moving the speed of light to get from here to there. And, and that's just how it's going to be. The throughput, well, that's the amount of data you can transfer per second. Um, we're, not, we're not doing that much throughput today. Um, I've done as much research as I can, but it's been pretty limited to, you know, just just what they're trying to achieve for a given mission. So, you know, six or eight megabits per second at the most. Um, 
and it's asynchronous, asymmetric rather. It's going more one way than the other because that's what's necessary for the mission. Um, but I think one gigabit is probably achievable. I mean, that's that's a guess, not an engineering uh, promise or anything. I I don't know enough about designing interplanetary radio links to have any idea for sure. Maybe one more, maybe more than one gigabit is achievable. Um, but I don't think you're going to be having hundreds and hundreds of gigabits of traffic. So think about that compared to what we have today on Earth. Um, another part of it is that the sun will get in the way. The sun blocks radio waves um, for a few reasons. One is it, it kind of acts metallic, right? The fusing hydrogen and, and all that stuff at that high density reacts a lot like metal does and, and where you know things bounce off it or are blocked by it. One of the craziest facts I learned about the sun is that the light coming from the sun came from reaction around 10,000 years ago and it takes a photon 10,000 years to work its way through the magnetism of the sun to make its way out. Crazy. Um, another reason that the sun can be a problem is it emits its own radio waves and emits all kinds of stuff. And it's huge, right? It's it's like a million times the volume of the Earth. So, you know, it's it's a, just a giant thing that sits in the way. And because we're going around the sun and Mars is going around the sun, but we're going at different rates because we're on different orbits, there's going to be some times where Earth is on one side of the sun and Mars is on the other. And, you know, forget taking that trip. It's a long trip, but there's going to be some time where you can't communicate. That happens now with these Mars missions. It can last as little as a couple weeks, but the the week leading in and the week leading out would be spotty. So right now they usually just plan for a month and set the the orbiters and all that stuff into their own, you know, power down state. But um, there are some other options besides going dark. You can go around the sun, um, like a relay station. You could relay through a satellite on another planet, um, but that'll be occluded or blocked uh, occasionally as well, depending on the position of that other planet. And the fact that if a satellite's in orbit, you'd have to find just the right orbit to keep it mostly on the side where Earth is. So it's probably not a great plate, a great way to do it. Um, there's a, another option, which is Lagrange points. Um, they're probably our best bet because they're, they are a point of orbit that is kind of off to the side or behind um, an orbiting object. So you imagine that there's three orbiting objects. There's or three objects involved in an orbit. One is, say, the sun. One is the Earth. And we have this third object. And we want to keep this third object in an orbit relative to the sun and the Earth. That's what a Lagrange point is. So you can put a satellite in a Lagrange point, and it'll stay consistently there relative to the Earth. And so that could be, uh, I think it's 30 degrees offset from where Earth is, which would mean that we would be able to relay through that point and it would never be occluded from Mars at the same time that Earth is uh, by the Sun. Now, we have put things into Lagrange point orbits for um, solar observations, so we don't have problems with eclipses and stuff. It's That's probably the least out there thing that, that, that I've talked about tonight, even though it sounds really crazy to me, but you know that's something we have been able to achieve as a you know as a spacefaring species so that means we could solve the problem of communication 
right? It's possible to maintain communication. It may not always be fast, but it is at least always possible. And it'll certainly be latent. So what does that mean? Well, most regular communication on Mars is probably going to be with other people on Mars, right? You can be within your colony, and if there's more than one colony, you know, more than one city, you could, like we do on Earth, establish fiber optic links between them, and then the, the different cities can talk to each other. So that stuff doesn't need to go through Earth. It doesn't need to go over this limited link. But what would go over that link? Well, um, I think, you know, you can immediately throw out video calls, phone calls, and streaming from Earth. Nothing like that makes sense, right? You get frustrated with, like, 20 seconds of buffering before your, your show starts on Netflix. Imagine 20 minutes or an hour between the time you make the request and starts playing. Besides, there's just not the capacity. Um, there may not even be the capacity for that kind of streaming if you're using the constellation of satellites over Mars, um, right? But there would be if there's fiber optics, right? The, the, we just do it the same way we do it on Earth. Um, this is what I would imagine. First, I think major movies and TV shows would probably be transferred regularly over that link, you know, either during periods of low activity or just kind of on an ongoing basis. I imagine that, that link would be, um, you know, a constellation of Earth communicating satellites that beam down to ground stations so that there's always a, a satellite that can view either Earth or the Lagrange point of Earth in the sky, and it's able to take those relay signals and, and bring them down to, to Mars. Um, that's kind of how I'd imagine it would work. And so I'm sure there's going to be times of high and low activity on that link. Um, you know, maybe a certain percentage of that, one megabit or two megabits per second or 10 megabits per second, would be dedicated to entertainment being transmitted and then saved locally on Mars. Um, you, know, you have to build a data center on Mars. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, data centers are kind of crazy here on Earth. They're just kind of weird places where very few people are, and there's just a lot of equipment, and they're noisy, and and cooling, and all that stuff are important. I guess, you know, there's there's this concept in data centers, airside economization, where you save money by instead of using air conditioning, pulling cool air from the outside. I guess there's no reason you couldn't do that with a data center on Mars. It would just mean that in the data center you'd have a really, really hard time. Uh, doing any work because you'd have to be in a spacesuit. I yeah, I can I can barely imagine what it would be like. But it is certainly a thing you could achieve, right? You could build a data center there. Probably you'd use the heat from the computers and instead of just, you know, expelling it out into Mars, you'd use it to keep the colony nice and warm. Um so that's um that's one part of what you could do. Um and I imagine entertainment would be a big thing. Likewise software, right? Um, whether it's the, you know, latest updates for Windows or Mac OS or, you know, Linux distributions like Ubuntu or, or elementary OS or, uh, or FreeBSD or whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I could see that going out there. I could see, um, some of the source code repositories, things like GitHub and GitLab where programmers get their, their stuff being synchronized out and, you know, different software repositories, um, you know, app store type stuff, so that, um, you know, you can get access to a wide variety of things. And maybe there'd be a certain level of uh, kind of caching where maybe at the first request, you have to wait 20 minutes, but then everyone can get it after that. So they don't have to synchronize everything up until there's demand for it. Um, you know, there'd also be kind of a requirement if you're, if you're using apps that are network oriented that the 
provider has a presence on Mars so that, you know, they're not routing all the traffic back to Earth because that would be, you know, that would be very difficult for people. Um, so if you think about what would actually be synchronized up, you could just imagine a percentage of the bandwidth being dedicated to that. The remainder would be for communications. And even a one gigabit link would be enough for millions of people to send emails that are text only. Um, text is actually very small, and a lot of the you know, original internet protocols were designed for high latency, slow connections. So it would be possible to do email-based communication pretty effectively. So you'd, you know the the Unicode set of emojis and text you can you can convey quite a lot. Um, there'd probably still be a cost for using it, but I don't think it would be that expensive if you're just sending you know short messages. Photos and videos would also be possible, as would voice recordings. Um, you know, so you could listen to Brighter Evening. Um, I think the cost on that would be higher because there'd be so much more bandwidth involved, and so people would be looking for high compression rates, lower resolutions. You know, it'd be kind of the interplanetary stuff. If you're emailing your your mom back home, you want to send her some pictures. You probably aren't going to be sending these super high resolution pictures we just take because we can. Probably going to you know pick your best shots and pick a few of them and send them out and spend the few bucks it takes, and then you know she can she can see your grandkids and send everything back. I think it's possible. That's that's kind of how I imagine it would work. Um, so that's, um, I mean, that's that's about as far as I'll take it with communication. It's something I I could could talk more about. It's something that's interesting to think about because, you know, there's all these problems with the sun blocking it and trying to determine how you manage this resource of the link between Earth and Mars. And the importance of managing that really comes down to what happens with the culture of Mars. You see, people would be indoors all pretty much all the time, just by necessity. They'd have to be indoors. And you'd end up with a very urban-type culture because you're not going to have wide country estates, right? It's all going to be these kind of urban corridor, you know, kind of like in Houston, they have this sort of underground city, and there's other places that do. I think Montreal as well, where you can go between uh, buildings underground without going outside. In Houston, it's because it's unbearably hot sometimes, and in Montreal it's because it's unbearably cold, and so you're just kind of protected from the elements. That's what the cities in Mars would be like. And so it'd be it'd be fairly urban. Um, and, you know, the population wouldn't be entirely disconnected from Earth, right? They'd still probably be looking at a lot of the same entertainment and have a lot of the same values. But values and needs would change over time, and culture would shift. The, the culture affects the local government. Or to put it another way, the government around you reflects your culture, you as a community. So if you're in the Bay Area, where there tends to be people with, say, a more liberal bent, you're going to have more liberal values in your local government. And if you're in uh, rural Texas where you're going to have maybe more conservative values on average you're going to see more of a conservative bent in your local government and i don't i don't think it's just on this you know conservative liberal ideological spectrum because there's more to it than that right urban interests and rural interests are different right what urban people want is different than what rural people want um 
you know, if you have a highly religious community, they probably are going to want things that are different than a not so religious community. If you have a very, um, you know, law and order based community, they're going to have different ideas than a more laissez-faire, you know, about the law kind of community, right? If it was, you know, a town of just libertarians, they're, you know, going to, they're going to be one way. And if it's going to be a town of Green Party activists, it's going to be a very different town. And certainly you're going to have all the same varieties of beliefs that you would have on Earth, but filtered through a different set of circumstances where everyone has to be urban. Everyone's in this kind of enclosed environment and going outside is is rare and dangerous. And, you know, their needs are different. Their worries are different. And so you can imagine that the local government on Mars would start to change and shift from the governments on Earth. And now you say, well, wait a minute, why would they have a local government? Well, I mean, you're talking about millions of people. They're going to need to have a mayor, you know, and they're going to need to have a governor, and they're going to need to have, uh, you know, council members, and, you know, all, all the all the different positions you'd have in a normal city in terms of leadership are going to need to be there, right? It's colonization, and colonies... You know, in the British colonies in the United States, it became states. They had governors, right? That's not going to change. Um, you're still going to need all that kind of stuff. You're going to need some kind of governmental structure to make sure that, you know, laws are followed, resources are managed effectively, and, and all the other jobs that governments are supposed to do. And so, Earth governments would really be pretty limited in their ability to respond to anything that happened on Mars. Because, first, they need to find out about it. And it's going to take them 20 minutes or an hour or whatever. And then all they can do is yell, you know. Hey, don't do that, you know, and then that's it. Because then they've got to go get on a rocket and fly. And I guess by the time there are millions of people on Mars, maybe rocketry will be cheap enough that they can send an armada, but it's it's harder in many senses than England sending a bunch of boats over to... America to fight, right? For and so it makes me wonder, you know, would independence be possible? Would would Mars become its own country or group of countries? If the economy's large enough, maybe they would. And then what happens to trade once this is a separate government in a separate country? Right? Now you're talking about having a Mars Mars visa and an Earth visa, you know, and and would Mars open trade differently between the United States and England and Russia and China, or would Mars treat the, you know, Mars and Earth treat each other as one level and countries are a different level? I mean, it's really hard to imagine what that would be like because it's completely uncharted territory for us. We can look back at what's happened in the past and wars that have been fought and systems we've put in place to have agreements to travel between places, right? I mean, everyone accepts passports just because everyone else accepts passports. It's something we came up with as an idea to facilitate travel between places. But there's no, there's no universal human law that passports have to exist. You know, do they need to exist in this case? Is it a different kind of passport? It's hard to say. But you could certainly imagine if the values and needs of Mars change and Earth isn't responding, Mars becoming independent. And if the colony is large enough and its local economy is big enough and they can grow enough food, 
they could remain so. And I've got mixed feelings on that. Because on the one hand, you know, it's it's kind of a weird thought that this colony would break off. But on another note, that would mean that humans have become a truly multiplanetary species. Which is an amazing thought. It means that, you know, if, if some catastrophic event happens to, to Earth or to Mars, we would survive. We'd have a, a way of continuing. And that's pretty cool. And it, it feels like something that could only possibly happen if we found another Earth-like planet. But maybe, maybe with enough growth, it's possible now. It's hard to say. Well, if uh, if you like this topic, let me know. You can send an email. There's informa- My email information is in, um, in, the, in the website at brighterevening.com, and, and we can talk about this again. I'll do some more research on space law or something, and, and we can talk more about communications or what a Martian economy would look like. Um, I appreciate you listening tonight. I hope you're staying safe and having a great evening. Thanks for listening. My name is Josh. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.